Welcome to the Willie Jackson Experiment. I'm your host, the one, the only, Willie Jackson. Oh, man. All right, guys. Uh, I got a great show for you. Um, I actually just want to give a shout out to uh, the Aces Cracked uh, Texas Hold'em Tournament. Um, you can go on to the uh, AC pokerleague.com and check out for some tournaments around you you guys know i love my cards love playing cards and uh man it's a lot of fun uh you know you can uh win some prizes you know from anywhere from 50 dollars to 200 depending on how many uh enter and uh you can win your seat in uh two hundred thousand dollar bar poker open so uh you know just something to check out guys and uh you know i think you'd enjoy it um so uh, my show tonight is about a true genius kind of like myself but uh this is about nikolai tesla and uh some of the things he might have been on with uh math um a lot of guys probably know already know um about all my sweet inventions and all my sweet things that I've invented, so, um, you know, and, and also they know about, you know, my pipe skills, and, you know, running conduit, you know, running circles around certain people, I'm not gonna mention names, but, uh, you know, we, uh, we tear it up, and, uh, we kinda owe it to some guys like Nikolai Tesla that were some modern day, uh, high thinkers, and uh i think you'll like this show it's it's pretty high tech uh if you don't if, if, if i lose you then uh i i understand you know it's trying to keep it on a little high level i'm trying to be funny but yeah this one um i don't know there's kind of i guess there's some humor in uh in some of it but i don't know man the the whole electrocuting animal thing kind of uh, yeah that got me a little bit, but um, hope you guys enjoy this show, and um, we'll see you on the flip side, fellas, ladies, gentlemen, peeps, peace. On the 7th of January, 1943, a maid working at the New Yorker Hotel entered room 3327, where one of their permanent residents was staying. Inside, she found the body of an 86-year-old man, who had died alone in a room he had been living in for the last nine years of his life. The man was broke, and had been living on a diet of milk and crackers, using the little resources he had left to feed and take care of the local pigeons. This man went by the name of Nikola Tesla. Seeing Tesla in his final years, it would have been hard to believe he was one of the greatest minds of the modern era. His genius shaped the world we know today, pioneering the alternating current, the electrical system which powers our homes around the globe. His influence can be seen all around us, from remote control and radio to wireless communication. Perhaps most impressive of all, Tesla's work and creations came out of his passion for science, with his earnings being sunk into projects aimed at the betterment of humanity, rather than for greed and profit. Tesla was born on the 10th of July 1856, in modern-day Croatia. His mother came from a line of inventors, and had an incredible memory, 
been able to memorise the entirety of Serbian epic poems, and so she trained her son with exercises in memorization. As time went on, Tesla was known to have an eidetic memory, later speaking eight different languages, which he credited to his mother's efforts in his youth. At the age of five, Tesla witnessed the death of his older brother in a horse riding accident, the image of which would stay with him for his entire life. After this, Tesla began experiencing flashes of light and images, making it hard to separate reality from his imagination. He claimed his inventions would come to him in these flashes of light, conceptualising their entire design in his head and correcting their flaws without ever putting pen to paper. In an interview from 1919, he described this process, stating, I do not rush into actual work. When I get an idea, I start at once building it up in my imagination. I change the construction, make improvements and operate the device in my mind. It is absolutely immaterial to me whether I run my turbine in thought or test it in my shop. Invariably, my device works as I conceived that it should, and the experiment comes out exactly as I planned it. In 20 years, there has not been a single exception. Tesla excelled in the education system, but ended up dropping out of university due to a gambling addiction and other personal issues. Inspired by electrical demonstrations by his physics professor, Tesla went and got a job with the Paris branch of the Continental Edison Company in 1882, installing indoor lighting around the city. Management soon realised that his talents were wasted on such a job, and tasked him with constructing and improving dynamos and motors. He was so insightful in his innovations that the company soon had him travelling around Europe, fixing problems at other Edison installations. In 1884, at the age of 28, Tesla's manager offered him a job at Edison Machine Works in New York City, an offer he accepted. He soon moved to America, where he would spend a majority of his life, becoming a naturalized citizen seven years later in 1891. He soon came into contact with company owner Thomas Edison, and the two initially got on, with Tesla describing Edison as an inspirational figure, and Edison stating to Tesla, I have had many hard-working assistants, but do you take the cake? This mutual admiration would not last long, however, with a lifelong rivalry soon developing. The main source of animosity between the two resulted from a disagreement about the type of current each man preferred. Edison's company owned the patents for DC, or direct current, a system where electric charge only flows in one direction. Tesla, however, was an advocate for alternating current, or AC, a system where the electric charge changes direction periodically. These changes in direction allow AC currents to maintain power over longer distances. It is also possible to use devices called transformers to change the magnitude of AC voltage, allowing a current to travel at a high voltage and then be reduced to a lower voltage for safe use in homes. Tesla tried explaining the benefits of alternating current to Edison, but Edison wouldn't listen as it could ruin the sales for direct current, to which he owned all the patents. Edison then offered Tesla a large bonus of $50,000 if he redesigned 24 of his obsolete machines. Upon completion, Edison refused to pay, and revealed that the task had been a practical joke, saying, Tesla, you don't understand our American humour. Tesla resigned after six months at the company, and set out on his own. He wanted to change the world, and he knew he could. 
He spent the next year setting up his own company, developing his ideas on alternating current. However, his investors showed little interest and decided to take the company, including all the patents he created. He was left digging ditches in the street to survive. Fortunes would soon change for Tesla, however, with his ideas on an alternating current motor catching the eye of a new investor, helping establish the Tesla Electric Company in 1887. He then designed a motor which was much cheaper and easier to maintain than the ones using a direct current. He revealed his motor at the American Institute of Electrical Engineers the following year, a display that caught the attention of a businessman named George Westinghouse. Westinghouse was a major player in the electric market and needed Tesla's current system, a system that would compete against Thomas Edison. Westinghouse bought the motor and hired Tesla as a consultant for the equivalent of $55,000 a month, along with royalties for each horsepower produced by his motors. Things for Tesla were looking good. And so began the War of the Currents. Edison started going to extreme lengths to discredit Tesla's AC system. He began paying schoolchildren 25 cents to bring him household pets, where he would set up a public stage and electrocute the animals, in an attempt to show the public that Tesla's AC system was not safe. Over time, electrocutions increased in scale, with a horse eventually being executed in public. Edison continued executing animals many years after the War of the Currents had concluded, with the Edison Film Company producing a short film in 1903 titled Electrocuting an Elephant. The film showed the electrocution of Topsy, a former circus elephant who was killed when 6,600 volts were shot through her body. Despite the negative press generated by Edison, Tesla and Westinghouse continued to develop their alternating current system. The opportunity to show that alternating current was both safe and viable for large-scale use came at the World's Columbian Exposition, hosted in Chicago in 1893. Edison had put forward an offer to light the fair, but Westinghouse underbid him, winning the contract and with it the chance to outshine Edison. While it was a struggle to provide lighting at the low cost put forward, Westinghouse and Tesla succeeded, showing the world the strength of alternating current. Their success continued, with Westinghouse Electric being chosen over Edison's company, General Electric, to construct a hydroelectric plant at Niagara Falls. Tesla drew up designs for the plant, which was a massive success, eventually powering part of New York City. Alternating current continued to grow in popularity and became the system we all use to power our homes today, with direct current being phased out over the next decade. While Westinghouse won the War of the Currents, his company was left on the verge of bankruptcy, with $10 million of debt. He turned to Tesla for help, asking him to temporarily reduce his royalties to help him keep his company afloat. Compelled by compassion for his friend, instead of reducing his royalties, Tesla tore up his contract, eliminating them entirely. The money he gave up would be worth $300 million in today's money, but this was of little concern to Tesla, who was more interested in the pursuit of science over financial gain. This act saved Westinghouse, who would go on to buy Tesla's AC patent for $216,000 in 1897. This is equivalent to about $6 million today, money that Tesla used to set up new laboratories in New York and fully dedicate himself to invention. 
Tesla had become an international figure, with his laboratories frequently visited by the rich and powerful, including his close friend and father of American literature, Mark Twain. Tesla's inventions were numerous, with him amassing almost 300 patents in his career. He created an early version of neon lighting, a highly efficient bladeless turbine for automobiles, and was the pioneer in X-ray technology, being one of the first to warn of its dangers to humans. One of his most famous inventions was his renowned Tesla coil, a device capable of producing large amounts of high-voltage electricity. A standout invention controlled boat displayed at Madison Square Garden in 1898. This boat was such an amazing advance in wireless technology and so ahead of its time that the audience initially thought he was using magic or telepathy to make it move. There were even claims that there was a monkey hidden inside the boat who was trained to operate it. While Tesla was an amazing inventor, he struggled to market his creations, always looking towards the next invention, rather than working out how to sell what he had already made. Many of his ideas went unwritten, and the ones that were noted down often went without a legal patent. This method of operating caused Tesla serious issues when he began working on radio at the end of the 19th century. He came up with the idea of radio in 1892, and was soon ready to transmit a signal to a location 50 miles away. But disaster struck, with his work being destroyed in a lab fire in 1895. Tesla had not submitted a patent application, and only did so after two years of rebuilding his research. At the same time, an Italian inventor named Marconi had also been working on radio, establishing patent rights in England. But when he tried to acquire them in the United States, he was turned down as his ideas were deemed too similar to Tesla's. Unfortunately for Tesla, Marconi was able to make the world's first transatlantic radio message in 1901, using 17 of Tesla's patents. Thomas Edison then threw his financial weight behind Marconi, with the US Patent Office suddenly changing its mind on its previous rulings. Marconi now had rights in the United States, with Edison able to take a cut of the profits. Tesla initially let the issue slide, but the last straw came when Marconi won the Nobel Prize in 1911 for his development of radio, something which was only possible due to Tesla's uncredited work. Tesla tried to sue Marconi, but the cases dragged on for years, only being resolved in Tesla's favour eight months after his death. Tesla's most radical idea came about at the turn of the 20th century. He aimed to create a world wireless system, which would be capable of dispersing energy to anywhere in the world. Tesla received funding for this project in 1901, and soon purchased land on Long Island, New York, where he would construct his device. Over the next year, a great wooden tower was constructed, standing 187 feet tall, with a metal dome 68 feet in diameter. He named the facility Wardenclyffe Tower, and believed it would radically advance wireless technology with what he called communication devices, the likes of which would not be seen for another century. A telephone subscriber here may call up and talk to any other subscriber on the globe. An inexpensive receiver, not bigger than a watch, will enable him to listen anywhere, on land or sea, to a speech delivered or music played in some other place, however distant. In the same manner, any picture, character, drawing or print can be transferred from one to another place. 
millions of such instruments can be operated from but one plant of this kind. The tower also had other applications, including universal and accurate timekeeping, global music distribution and a marine system which would allow ships to determine their exact location and steer perfectly without the need for a compass. Despite his amazing ideas, Tesla soon suffered many setbacks. Marconi's 1901 radio broadcast had drawn attention away from Wardenclyffe Tower, with the media beginning to think of the project as a hoax. The investors Tesla had been able to gather soon realised that there was no way to regulate and therefore profit from the energy produced by the tower. This led many investors to back out, leaving Tesla, who was now in his 50s, in financial ruin. Tesla struggled on for over a decade, trying to complete his plans in vain. He then had a nervous breakdown, and his debt reached so high he lost Wardenclyffe to foreclosure in 1915. The land soon passed to another owner, who destroyed the tower to make space for real estate. Tesla was now bankrupt, and his mental health started to significantly decline. He began living in a string of hotels, and started caring for pigeons, taking time every day to feed and care for them. In his late 70s, he ended up at the New Yorker Hotel, where he would stay for the rest of his life. This was largely thanks to the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company, who saw the dire conditions he was in and decided to pay his rent as a way to thank him for saving them all those years ago. Tesla went on to live until the age of 86, dying in his hotel room on the 7th of January 1943. Nikola Tesla was a man ahead of his time. His advancements in electricity were radical, helping to usher in the modern age, with his influence seen in anything from x-rays to remote control. His world wireless system had the potential to advance technology by nearly a century, while also providing free energy to the globe. Unlike so many of his era, Tesla did not work for financial gain, instead working to advance humanity. Perhaps it is not surprising, that a man so far ahead of his time has only found his place in the 21st century, an age shaped by his technological brilliance. In 1905, physics genius Nikola Tesla submitted his US patent 787412, which was titled The Art of Transmitting Electrical Energy Through the Natural Medium. It included designs for a series of worldwide generators. Tesla realized that the ionosphere was sparkling with electrical energy which could easily be tapped. Planet Earth, according to Tesla, was a gigantic electrical generator spinning around two magnetic poles from which limitless energy can be harnessed using the right medium or shape. His device was later referred to as Tesla's electromagnetic pyramid, based on his design looking like a triangle shape. Tesla tapping into the, the actual shape of the pyramid, I believe was something that, that just came roundabout through his investigation into the location of the pyramids. Because what appears to have happened is that he realized that it wasn't the actual shape of the pyramid so much, although pyramids uh, exhibit uh, fractal energy much more efficiently than other types of designs. But what he discovered was it was the location of the pyramids that created the power. 
And when he, he built his uh, facility here in Colorado Springs, and then um, on the East Coast, he did so according to the laws of where the pyramids at Giza were constructed. And it had to do with the elliptical orbit of the Earth and those sites' relationship to the actual equator. That there was a natural construction somehow taking place between those very specific sites and the overall energy field of the Earth. And because of that, he believed he could transmit power wirelessly. Tesla's discovery and device disappeared after his mysterious death in 1943. But what he was trying to tap into might have just scratched the surface of understanding the power of something much more ancient. According to Nikola Tesla, 369 is the key to the universe. Tesla became so obsessed with this 369 that he would drive around a building three times before going inside of it. He cleaned his place with 18 napkins, lived in hotel rooms only with a number divisible by three. He made calculations about things in their immediate environment just to make sure the result was conceivable by three. And he based his choices on the results. He did everything in sets of three. What is Nikola Tesla trying to make us understand? We must understand that we did not create mathematics. We discovered them. It is the universal language and law. No matter where in the universe you are, one plus two will always equal three. Everything in the universe obeys this law. These forms are in nature, but the ancients emulated these forms in construction. If Nikola Tesla's obsession was with these numbers and his goal was to define his location and time in space, could it be possible that ancient humans created monuments like the Great Pyramids to remind us of these truths? In Sumerian tradition and in the surviving texts, there is a very strong and intriguing reference to what are called the seven antediluvian sages, the, the seven sages who came before the flood. And their leader is a figure called Oannes. We find that he is depicted as a man, but curiously, he's wearing a sort of fish garb or a fish costume. Uh, archaeologists often refer to him as a fish-garbed figure. And the other seven sages are also dressed in this fish costume. So you see the legs of a human being and the face and features a bearded human being. But then he's wearing on his head uh, the head of a fish and the body of a fish hangs down his back. It's a very, it's a very curious idea, really. Um, and he and, and all of them hold in their hands uh, a, a curious little bag, which I tend to refer to as a man bag. I see them as a kind of badge of office, uh, a, a recognizable symbol where, where perhaps members of a brotherhood would be able to recognize one another by their carrying of this symbol. It's curious that we see a figure holding the same bag that we see on the Sumerian reliefs and holding it in exactly the same way. And not only that, but those same bags turn up on top of Pillar 43 in Enclosure D at Gobekli Tepe, where we know that they're at least 11,600 years old. The tradition is clearly rooted before the flood. Then comes the flood, the cataclysm wipes everything out, but that brotherhood persists through the flood. And, and after the flood, they are again 
offering the gifts of civilization to, to mankind. Could Oannes and his sages have re-emerged after the cataclysmic flood to teach the knowledge of the universe? In Sumerian cuneiforms, Enki is sometimes depicted as a bearded man wearing a fish costume and sometimes carrying a bag. Interesting to note that in the Egyptian depictions of gods, they are not holding a bag, but an important symbol called the Ankh. The Ankh depicts immortality and life. It is also connected with Isis and the planet Venus. Could these carrying devices be transmitting the same kind of energy? Anton Park's research has traced the re-emergence of Enki to Egypt and, as a byproduct of his death, the building of the Great Pyramid. In my view, the Great Pyramid was built by Isis. I believe it was created to reincarnate Osiris into Horus. It is quite complicated. The Osirian, the so-called aquatic temple dedicated to Osiris in Abydos, Abaju in Egyptian, means it is located in the city, which is, according to Egyptian history, the first city of Osiris. Yet, to be able to find seashells on a temple located in the middle of the desert, you have to go back thousands of years, at least 10,000 years. Why would he have made such a temple with aquatic features? Because Osiris, who is also Inky, they are the same person, had amphibian genes. Osiris, Inky, was killed by his nemesis Set, who was in fact in Lille during one of their many battles. It took place in Abydos, which also corresponds to the Sumerian Apsu, where Osiris's aquatic temple can be found. The texts clearly state that all of Osiris's servants were slaughtered during a battle, as well as Osiris himself, who was crucified on a tree. This is how he died. Isis is quite a character. She can't really be found in Mesopotamian literature. Although she could be considered the goddess Ninti, she is the woman who lives in the great deeps, underground. I think that these underground passageways could correspond to the ones we can find under the Giza Plateau. We know that the Giza Plateau is full of underground passages. I believe that the clan of Osiris lived there. As far as the resurrection of Osiris into Horus is concerned, Isis organizes it. The texts are very clear about that. And we understand that she used Osiris's genetic code to create Horus. She created the Great Pyramid in order to accomplish this task. The Great Pyramid allowed Isis to find Osiris's soul again. We don't really know how, but she would have put Horus's genetic code in the pyramid. She would have been able to create another body using Osiris's genetic code, the so-called UF in Egyptian body. And thanks to the coding of the Great Pyramid, she reached Osiris's soul so it could come into the new body of Horus. Although the dating of the Great Pyramid has been argued by different scientists, there is evidence that below the monument, something existed there that was much older. When we look at the Great Pyramid, the Second Pyramid, and Third Pyramid, there's no doubt in my mind that they were being reused, should we say, partially reconstructed, built upon during dynastic times, just like the Sphinx itself was being repaired during dynastic times. 
but I'm also convinced that at least the core of those pyramids, particularly the Great Pyramid and the Second Pyramid, go back to a much earlier period. So for instance, the Great Pyramid is actually built on what I would call a sacred mound. And this is acknowledged even by the Egyptologists. Now they say it all goes back to the fourth dynasty, circa you know, 26, 2500 BC. But my analysis is that at least the core, the original portions, for instance, the descending passage, the subterranean chamber, go back to a much earlier period then it was built over, and I think some of that building over it goes back to prior to dynastic times. Could this be proof of the clan of Osiris and their knowledge? And could this group have harnessed the powers of the universe to bring back a god? Some experts point to the fact that the Great Pyramid itself has always been connected with the afterlife. What you'll find inside those pyramids is acres and acres and acres of texts deeply inscribed into the walls. They belong to the same vast body of literature to which belongs the famous ancient Egyptian Book of the Dead. And the ultimate moment in your journey through the Duat is your entry into the Judgment Hall of Osiris, the Hall of Martin, where you will be asked to account for everything that you've, that you've done with your life. So it seems to me uh, very clear that, uh, that the Great Pyramid is part of a, an attempt to create a three-dimensional model of the afterlife realm. If the ancient text from both Sumerian cuneiforms and Egyptian books suggest the Great Pyramid as a place to resurrect the dead, could there be another hidden message? There is an ancient code to be found within the Great Pyramid. It's within the geometry, not just of the pyramid itself, but its relationship to the other two main pyramids of the Giza Plateau. Having studied this for a number of years, it seems to be related very much to do with the idea of the music of the spheres, the idea that there is some kind of connection between the primal tones of the universe itself and their relationship to the creation of form and structure in the physical world, and that to somehow attune and enhance this connection that certain proportions have to be constructed into the design of the pyramid and also the geometry of the landscape itself. And these seem to reflect the musical intervals, in particular those which are known as the perfect fourth, which has a ratio of 4-3, and those known as the perfect fifth, as a ratio of three to two, one of which is an inverse form of the other. If the Great Pyramid is indeed a construction to harmonize creation, wherein lies the code to such a great power? Many people don't know this, but in fact it's not a four-sided pyramid. It has a very slight concavity on each side, making it an eight-sided pyramid. Now, the minute you do this, you not only complicate the design tremendously, but it produces rather bizarre geometry. So, this geometry, when we analyze it, produces numbers. Numbers keep popping out. Numbers that shouldn't be there. Things like universal constants. Constant, uh, that has been known for over 100 years. 
the phi constant, the golden ratio, but we have now strange numbers like Euler's number coming up in the design. Could this geometry produce a message? The Great Pyramid uh, is situated within a whisker of latitude 30. It seems like the, the, the latitude choice was derived from uh, astronomy um, because there's a lens effect of the atmosphere of the Earth and when you take that into account, the tiny error shy of latitude 30 goes away. They were on astronomical latitude 30, if you like. Seems like a very deliberate choice because it's not a random latitude. It's one third of the way between the equator and the North Pole. This is just one of the many ways, I feel, in which the Great Pyramid deliberately and purposefully speaks to our planet. The next way it does that uh, is that it is aligned. If you take upon yourself the project of building a pyramid and aligning it to true north, south, east and west, you wouldn't make any error at all. There is an error in the Great Pyramid. It's tiny. It's three sixtieths of a single degree off true north. This is almost eerie precision because the scale of the monument is so huge. This thing is 481 feet high. It has a footprint of 13, slightly more than 13 acres. It weighs 6 million tons. It consists of two and a half million individual blocks of stone. You're taking that whole gigantic mountain of stone and you are aligning it within just 3 sixtieths of a single degree of true north. We're not talking about magnetic north, which varies. We're talking about astronomical north, the true north of this planet. It's a very remarkable thing, and that's the north of this planet. Once again, the Great Pyramid is speaking to the Earth. Could the pyramid be revealing something else about our planet? Then you find something else as you go deeper. Start measuring the Great Pyramid. Measure it very, very, very precisely. Measure its base perimeter, and then measure its height, and scale those numbers up. What you find is that at a scale of one to 43,200, and I'll explain why that's not a random scale in a moment. On a scale of one to 43,200, the dimensions of the pyramid give you the dimensions of this planet. In other words, if you measure the base perimeter of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, you get the equatorial circumference of the Earth. And if you measure the height of the Great Pyramid and multiply it by 43,200, you get the polar radius of the Earth. So in all those centuries and millennia, when our ancestors went through the Dark Ages and didn't even know that they were living on a planet, let alone the dimensions of the planet, all they ever had to do was go accurately measure the Great Pyramid, multiply those numbers by 43,200, and they have the dimensions of our planet. Could this be the evidence to suggest that ancient places like the Great Pyramid are here to always show us our place in the stars? Egyptologists are aware of this, but they say it's a total coincidence. There's no significance to it whatsoever, as far as Egyptologists are concerned. And you know, if the scale were something different, if it were 1 to 57,000 or 1 to 42,000 even, they could be right. The reason they're not right is that the scale is not random. The scale is defined by a key motion of the Earth.
Our Earth, as well as spinning on its own axis, has a wobble on its axis. That's called precession. Rather, the effect that you get if you set a spinning top spinning. As it begins to slow down, it begins to wobble, and the top of the top begins to transcribe a circle. The Earth does that. Uh, if you take the extended north pole of the Earth and extend it out into the heavens, you'll find that today in our time, it's pointing at a star we call Polaris. That's our pole star. But it hasn't always pointed at Polaris, and it won't always point at Polaris in the future. Sometimes it'll point at empty space. Sometimes it pointed and will point at other stars. There was a time when Thuban in Draco was the pole star. That's because of the precessional wobble on the Earth's axis. The extended north pole of the Earth isn't always pointing at the same place. Over a cycle of 25,920 years, it's doing that. That's why the pole star changes. At the same time, on the horizon, and we know that ancient cultures had a great interest in particular moments of the year, particularly the equinoxes, when night and day are of equal length. Uh, it was an obsession of ancient cultures. What was the constellation that lay in the place on the horizon where the sun rose on the spring equinox? What was the constellation that housed the sun? This is familiar language in astrology. What's the constellation that housed the sun on the spring equinox? In our epoch, it's the constellation of Pisces. We live in the age of Pisces, near the end of it, as a matter of fact. It's not an accident that the early Christians used the fish as their symbol, because Christianity began at very near the beginning of the age of Pisces. Each one of these zodiacal ages lasts for 2,160 years. And then the sun transits out of, on the equinox, transits out of one constellation and into another. So we indeed do live in the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Because of the processional motion of the Earth, because of this change, this wobble on the Earth's axis, the constellation that houses the Sun on the equinox is shifting out of Pisces and into Aquarius. That shift will be complete within the next 100 or 150 years. What we have here is a process that operates at the rate of one degree every 72 years. We allocate 30 degrees to each of the 12 constellations of the zodiac. Multiply 72 by 30, and you get 2,160. That's a zodiacal age. Take the whole cycle of the zodiac, the whole 12 constellations, each with 2,160 years housing the sun on the spring equinox, and you get what the ancients called the great year, when everything cycles back to the beginning and the whole process starts again. Do you follow? That's 25,920 years. It's, the heartbeat is one degree every 72 years. It is defined by a key motion of our planet. That number, 43,200, is a multiple of 72. It's directly related to that number. And it's not as though we're confined to Giza and the Great Pyramid. Those numbers are found all over the world. They're found in ancient mythology. Osiris, after all, was killed by Set and his 72 conspirators. The number occurs in the ancient Egyptian texts. It occurs in the number of syllables in the Rig Veda uh, in, in India. It occurs in North myth Norse mythology. It's found, it's found all around the world. There's an intense focus on this system of numbers. So it can't be an accident that the same system of numbers crops up in the Great Pyramid, and that not only does the Great Pyramid give us the dimensions of the Earth, but that it does so on a scale defined by the Earth itself. 
That's an incredibly clever piece of work that we're, that we're looking at there. Could the ancient builders have given us a monument to decode our human existence? Interestingly enough, the numbers Tesla was obsessed with show up in the equations of the Great Pyramid. The numbers Graham has concluded from his research on the pyramid are 72, 43,200, 600, 30, 25,920, and 2,160. And all of those numbers either equal 3, 6, or 9. Then let's give you one more example. Let's track east from Giza. Let's go off to Cambodia, uh, to Angkor in Cambodia. An amazing site. Again, very much devoted to the investigation of the mystery of death. The very word Angkor actually has a meaning in the ancient Egyptian language. It means life to the Horus. And lo and behold, it turns out that, uh, that Angkor, with its pyramidal monuments, Angkor lies exactly 72 degrees of longitude east of Giza. I do not believe that that is an accident or a coincidence. I think there's a deep and ancient connection. And what we're looking at in Angkor, because that site was continuously used by many later cultures, both Hindu and Buddhist, what we're looking at in Angkor is the latest incarnation of a much more ancient site, which just like Giza, goes back into remote prehistory. Could these precise calculations be spread across the globe and communicating a code? Is it possible this is what Nikola Tesla tapped into? Robert Bouval predicts this is the language of the future. The way we read the universe is through mathematics and through its geometry, and through its mathematics and geometry. We need to know slowly through our evolution, we begin to work out how triangles work, circles, ellipses, uh, various shapes and now work out the numbers, how they produce numbers. So having said this, the language that, that we as human beings will be communicating sounds a bit, it sounds a bit too science fiction, but I don't think we'll be talking English or Chinese in, in the next two three centuries. Already we're using a different language, using computers. Uh, I think we'll be talking mathematics in the sense that to get a pure idea out, to get a pure thought out and to structure it so that you understand exactly what I'm talking about, the shape, the size, the dimension, the weight, the speed, I'll have to number it, I'll have to put mathematics. The Great Pyramid is speaking that language, it's transmitting that language, it's a silent language, if you like, that needs to be read. We don't need Egyptologists, we don't need experts in hieroglyphs, it doesn't have hieroglyphs, we need mathematicians. We need mathematicians to read it. And that's one of the goals, is to, is, is to tempt them to get into this. We've moved in a direction where we rely on external, external knowledge. We seem to think that the answer is out there and, and we look for it. Well, the answer may be inside us. I, I truly believe this. And therefore, we need to re-change uh, re the, the, how, how we uh, see ourselves and how we educate ourselves. I think what's interesting now is that uh, the science is beginning to sort of touch the frontiers of what you would call in general terms spirituality. We begin to realize that the universe is mental. It, 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 it is a mental universe. And we need to think in different forms, not just purely uh, classical science. 
If indeed the purpose of the Great Pyramid was to educate humans on our place in time and space, could it also be a device to help change our consciousness? I have for a long while argued that the, the central concept of, of certainly the pyramids of Egypt, and I, I think the case is true all over the world, was to do with the transformation of human consciousness. Whatever else the Great Pyramid is, the Great Pyramid of Giza in Egypt, whatever else it is, it is for sure an instrument that works upon human consciousness. Could the Great Pyramid be a monument that was built to withstand all catastrophes so that humanity could always have the codes to the universe? Standing near the pyramid is another monument that has baffled experts for ages. In the 1990s, when I first started studying the Sphinx, what I determined is that it must go back to earlier climatic period. When I initially calibrated these, I knew that it had to be at least five to 7,000 BC. Since then, I've continued my studies, and I'm convinced at this point that we have to go back to at least around 10,000 BC. Up next, the code left behind by the Sphinx.